Good morning and welcome. We're, gr we're glad that you're here today. We're very thankful for our visitors. We've got a number of folks that are here from out of town. I know Pete and Justine have probably about a half a section full of people. And so we're glad that they're here today and we're glad that you're here. It might be that you're visiting for the first time. We want you to know that we are so grateful that you're with us. If you're looking for a church home, we invite you to consider our work here. I think this is a great church, and we would love to have you come and be a part of our work together. We're always grateful for our young people, and this past Friday night, fifth quarter kicked off. And if you have not been a part of that, I would encourage you to come and be a part of that. There were a lot of young folks here Friday night, and they stayed till about midnight. And I know they had a great time, and we appreciate Jared and Anna. They had a great devotional, and so we encourage all of our young people to be a part of that. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, in just a moment as we think about God's master plan. I want to begin today by saying that God in the long ago had a master plan, and that master plan included you. As a matter of fact, it included and includes all of us. The Bible tells us that before God ever laid the foundation of the world, he had a plan devised whereby he would save all people in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians 1, in verse 4, that God chose us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. To think that God had you and me in mind is mind-boggling. And yet God did. God created man in his own image and likeness, according to Genesis chapter 1. In creating man, God endowed the human family with the freedom to make choices in life. And because God is omniscient, all-knowing, he recognized that giving man the opportunity to make decisions in life, man would ultimately make poor choices, thereby allowing sin to make an entrance into the world. And Genesis chapter 3 reveals the fate of Adam and Eve and the sin that came into the human family. And so as a result of sin, God immediately invoked this plan and began unveiling it in chapter 3 verse 15 with the announcement of the promised seed. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about this great master plan that includes all of us. I want to begin by first of all talking about the burden of sin. Now there are a lot of people that don't understand that living a life of sin is a burden, but the Bible says it is. Now, there are some folks that you could interview in our world today, and because of the choices they have made, they would tell you 
but they have been burdened with guilt and anguish and sorrow. That their lives have been upside down because of decisions that they have made. Sinful choices. Let me just first of all talk about the deceiver of those who are in sin. Listen to what Paul said beginning in verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. And what Paul is saying is that the devil is the one that deceives people. The devil has been at work since creation. That is, going all the way back to the garden. The devil deceived Mother Eve. Adam likewise transgressed the will of God. Spiritual death became a reality, as did physical death. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul would say, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the devil is described by the Apostle Paul as the prince of the power of the air. Writing to the church at Corinth, he would identify the devil as the god of this age, the god of this world. But then what about a description of those who are in sin? There are some statements made by Paul that lend insight into the lifestyle and the consequences of those who live in sin. Note, if you would, again, what Paul says beginning in verse 1. He said, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. All who live in sin are living in disobedience to the will of God. Sometimes people ask the question, what is sin? The Bible says that sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Literally, the word sin means a missing of the mark. There's a divine standard, and when we fail to meet that divine standard, then we become sinners. And the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul would say there's none righteous, no, not one. So sin is a reality, and Paul here describes those who live lives of disobedience. But then there is also the idea that those who are in sin are living disconnected, in disharmony with the will of God because Paul said in verse 1 that those in Ephesus that had obeyed the gospel had at one time been dead in trespasses and sins. So there was spiritual death, yes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 
But down in verse 12, the apostle Paul talks about those who were outside a covenant relationship with God, and he said they were without hope and without God in this world. In other words, there was a disconnect. There was alienation. Isaiah talks about how sin separates us from Almighty God. So these people at one time had been disconnected from a relationship with God. And yet Paul says that Jesus came to serve as a mediator between God and man. In other words, to bring the two parties together. The Lord Jesus stood in the middle. You've got God on the one hand, the sinner on the other. Jesus in the middle, and he brings us together through the cross. And then the doom. Paul said again, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Hard to imagine living a life that is described by Scripture as a life that's without hope, a life of doom. Some years ago, I remember seeing a picture on the front page of the paper. And the picture was that of a fighter jet. And that fighter jet was pictured vertically. It was in a nosedive toward planet Earth. The pilot was doing everything within his power to bring that plane out of that nosedive. Didn't happen. When people live in sin, they are in a nosedive. And they're plunging at a very rapid rate toward eternity. So Paul here pictures this whole idea, the whole danger, so to speak, of living in sin. So we think about the burden of those who live in sin. But think about, if you would, in the second place, the blessings of salvation. Now we talk about God's master plan and how that master plan involves all of us. The Bible tells us that the basis, there is a basis, a backdrop, if you please, for our salvation. Now somebody might ask the question, why in the world would God be concerned with the human family? Why would he care enough to devise a plan to save us. Well, Paul spells that out. There are some statements made by Paul in verses 4 and following that lend insight into the basis of our salvation. First of all, he speaks of God's rich mercy. Listen to him in verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy, the psalmist in Psalm 103, talks about as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards those who fear Him. The word mercy means active pity. God had pity, or as we would say, had mercy on us. Sometimes individuals will commit heinous crimes, and they will ask the courts, to have mercy upon them. We were in sin, lost, without hope, without God, and yet God had mercy on all of us. And then note, if you would, in the second place, not only do we read about God's rich mercy, but Paul speaks of God's great love. 
But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, listen to him, with which he loved us. Paul here is including himself. When Paul wrote to the saints in Galatia, he said that Christ loved him and gave himself for him. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. Let me tell you why God devised a plan to save you and me, because he loved us. God cares about his creation. You think about everything that God created. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that when God surveyed creation, that he said, it's very good. God could look out over the landscape and everything that he had made, including the human family, was good, very good. But man, the crown of his creation. God loved us enough to send his son to die for our sins. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. God loved us when we were still in sin. And the Bible says, God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then note, if you would, the third basis. First, God's great and rich mercy. Secondly, God's great and rich love. And then thirdly, God's great and matchless grace. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast or glory. God's grace, his unmerited favor. God doing for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. God has lavished his grace upon us. When we obey the gospel of Christ, we contact the blessings and the provisions of his grace. And we enjoy all of the great spiritual blessings that he talks about in chapter 1 in verse 3. And so you think about the basis for God's salvation. His rich mercy, his great love, his grace. And then what about the bedrock of our salvation? Let me say this. Everything that we enjoy, spiritually speaking, revolves around one person, Jesus Christ. Let me just give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, he speaks of Christ. In verse 6, he speaks of Christ Jesus. In verse 7, again, Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here that Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to enjoy the blessings of redemption. The Lord Jesus executed the Father's will. God was the architect. Jesus was the agent by which this plan was executed, put into place. No wonder Paul would say, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He's made us accepted in the beloved, in verse 6 of chapter 1. 
Now, there are two things that Jesus has done when we talk about the bedrock of our salvation. Number one, he has saved us by his blood. Is there anything more necessary than the blood of Jesus? Listen to Paul in verse 7 of chapter 1. It's in Christ, he said, that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Think about it. Jesus went to the cross, shed his blood so that we might enjoy forgiveness. Now, there are a lot of people in the world today. They have the idea that they are beyond the scope of redemption, that there's no way that the blood of Christ could ever meet their needs. They've gone too far. They've said too much. Well, the Bible says that where grace, rather where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So the blood of Jesus has the ability, the capacity to wash away every sin. Saul of Tarsus said that he was instructed by Ananias in the long ago to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Let me tell you what, you think about the power of the blood of Jesus. Drop down and look at verse 12 of chapter 2, the book of Ephesians. Paul talks about those, that is the Gentile world at one time, having no hope and without God in the world. But now note if you would the difference maker. In verse 13 he said, But now, present tense, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near. By what? By the blood of Jesus? By the blood of Christ? We sing the song, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood, he did so to redeem us from the bondage of sin. So first there is redemption by his blood. Secondly, there is reconciliation in his body. Drop down and look at verse 16. And that he, that is Christ, might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now let's just pause there for a minute. Paul here is saying that Jesus Christ, when he died on Calvary's cross, has reconciled both Jew and Gentile in the one body that is in the church. And Ephesians 4 verse 4, the Bible says that there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called by one hope of your calling. So I think about people that, like the Gentiles, that at one time had been estranged from God, and then you think about the Jews, God's chosen people. When Jesus came to earth and died on Calvary, the intent was to bring them both together in the one body. And here's the beauty of it. When you obey the gospel, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus as a son of God, repent of your sins, confess his name before others, and are immersed in water, God then puts you in this body that we call the church. The Bible says on Pentecost Day when Peter preached that first gospel sermon that those who were present cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on that day. And the Bible says in Acts 2 verse 47 that the Lord added to the church 
those who were being saved. So here Paul is saying that the blessings of salvation are available to all. As a matter of fact, back in Isaiah chapter 2, when Isaiah foretold of the church, he foresaw it as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. That's both Jews and Gentiles. Now, there's a third thing I want you to see very quickly. And that is the body of the saved. Now, the body of the saved, of course, has to do with the church. But there are two things very quickly you need to see. First of all, the prince of peace. You see, Jesus came to bring peace to the human family. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. When Jesus was born centuries ago, the Bible says there was an angelic host that cried out, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Isaiah foretold of Jesus as the prince of peace. Jesus came to bring peace to those of us who are living on planet earth. And let me tell you what, you live in sin, you may think you have peace, but you don't have the peace that passes all understanding. You don't have peace with God. You can't go to bed at night and know for a fact that you're going to heaven. But if you're in Christ, you can. If you're in Christ, you can have the peace, as Paul said, that passes all understanding. So I think about the Prince of Peace. But then, secondly, the place of peace. There are two things that Jesus accomplished when he died on Calvary's cross. Number one, he broke down social walls. Note if you would what is said in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division, that middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Note the emphasis on peace. Well, where's all this peace accomplished in the body? Now, I said a moment ago that when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he redeemed us by his blood, he reconciled us in his body, and he has broken down social walls. If you had lived in the first century and you had had opportunity to go to the temple, you would have observed that there was what was called the court of the Gentiles. And it separated them from the temple. They could only go so far. If you went back and looked at those who lived in the first century, the Jews despised the Gentiles. They called them dogs. Not only did they despise the Gentiles, but they despised the Samaritan people as well because they were viewed as half-breeds. As John observed in John chapter 4, verse 9, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And what Paul is saying here is that socially speaking, both Jews and Gentiles, they're on the same platform. As a matter of fact, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. He said you're all one in Christ. If you're one in Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What does that mean to us today? It means that in Christ, we're not 
black, we're not white, we're not Asian, we're not Japanese, but we're Christians. We're believers. God is colorblind, and we ought to be as well. And what Paul is saying here is that God was able to take these two parties, these two people that had been at enmity with one another, and bring them together in Christ. We've got a lot of social problems in our world today. We have social problems, we have racial problems, and the place where all of those social problems can be ridden from our earth, ridden from the world, is in Christ and in the church of Christ. Because you see, the Apostle Paul said that in Christ, we're believers, we're Christians. And then that spiritual wall that was broken down. The Gentiles at one time had no hope. They were without God. They didn't enjoy the blessings of that covenant relationship. But now listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 18. Through him, that is through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That is both Jews and Gentiles now have access to God through whom? Through Jesus Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Luke said, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name unto heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul is saying that both Jews and Gentiles, they're on equal footing. In Christ, we're all believers. We're all Christians. We're all one and the same. No distinctions. The Gentile people, they were viewed as foreigners. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Now there were both Jews and Gentiles making up the church at Ephesus. But Paul said in verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what Christ does for all of us. When we become children of God, we become a part of God's family. Let me tell you what, you might, you might have a great family here on earth, you might have family members that you love with all your heart. But in Christ you have a family. A family that is made up of people that have obeyed the gospel. You'll have a family that has the hope of heaven. You see the Bible says in Ephesians 5 verse 23 that Jesus is the Savior of the body. Now we talk about this master plan. Now think about how businesses and corporations will sometimes begin with a master plan. And they will execute that plan to perfection in order to be successful and prosperous. God had a master plan. And that master plan has been executed to perfection. Here's the question. Are you a part of that master plan? Have you availed yourself of the cleansing blood of Jesus? Can you imagine people dying? without Christ. You think about everything that God has done for you and you'll walk away from it, leave it on the table. Sometimes we talk about people having all of these great blessings at their disposal and they just walk away from them. Can't imagine it. Paul is saying here, look, you can't afford to walk away from this great plan that God has devised for you. I want you to know God loves you. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Why won't you do what they did on Pentecost Day? Simply become a New Testament Christian. Repent of your sins, be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away. And then just live a faithful life. And in so doing, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2, verse 10. Maybe you're here today, your life's not what it ought to be. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you. Why? Because we're family. Because we have that right and privilege. Why not come as we stand and sing?